This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. With me today is Ms. Patricia Goldsmith, CEO of Cancer Care, to discuss exactly that, cancer care. Ms. Goldsmith or Trish, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Ms. Goldsmith's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, listeners are likely well aware that after heart disease, cancer is a leading cause of mortality in the U.S. at over 600 deaths annually. Though mortality rates have been declining for the past 30 years, significantly due to tobacco cessation. However, the CDC last year in June projected that because of the growth of aging of the population, uh, the annual number of cancer cases will increase 49% between 2015 and 2050, with the largest increase among those 75 and older. Current cancer medical costs are considerable at approximately $210 billion. About 10% of these are out of pocket. The ongoing COVID pandemic has not surprisingly significantly compromised cancer care, causing severe interruptions in cancer screenings and treatment. That is expected uh, will produce negative ripple effects. Cancer care has also been compromised by drug costs. Per a recent September 23rd memo concerning President Biden's quote-unquote cancer moonshot that aims to cut cancer death rates by 50% over the next 25 years, up to 30% of Medicare beneficiaries without subsidies, do not fill their anti-cancer prescriptions. Medication non-adherence explains significant drug pricing reforms in the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act legislation. Moreover, Medicare drug price negotiation, Medicare inflationary rebates, and Part D Medicare redesign reforms that include annual limits on premium growth, an out-of-pocket cap of $2,000, and a cap on insulin spending at $35 per month. These reforms were sought by Democrats since at least the Clinton administration. So that is background with me again to discuss cancer care broadly is cancer care CEO Trish Goldsmith. So with that, uh, Trish, of course, I'm very interested in your organization and its work. So let's start if you can provide by if you're providing a overview of the mission and work of cancer care. Certainly, I'm very happy to do that, David. So Cancer Care is a 78-year-old organization, the only organization in this country in the advocacy and cancer space that is older is the American Cancer Society. We are headquartered in Manhattan, but we also have large offices in Long Island and New Jersey. But with rare exception, we serve clients all across the United States. And we serve anyone who has been impacted by a diagnosis of cancer. So not just the cancer patients themselves, but their loved ones, their children, the bereaved um, individuals that are struggling with a co-worker's diagnosis. And we do that in a variety of ways. I'll talk to you about the pillars and some of the unique things that the organization does. Please be aware that everything that Cancer Care does is provided free of charge to anyone who turns to us for help and hope. So the heart and soul of our organization is 40 plus masters prepared oncology social workers. 
with rare exception, anybody that reaches out to us for help and hope will not get a phone tree, press three for this, press five for that. Your call will be answered by a highly trained social worker that will do an intake in a very kind and warm way and, and listen to that individual and then match them up with programs or services that we can provide or that perhaps other organizations can provide. So the psychosocial support through counseling, through support groups, and a variety of other mechanisms is, again, the heart and soul of the organization. We also have very robust education programs for individuals working with KOLs in the oncology community. This education is not only on the disease itself. Cancer Care is not a clinical or a scientific organization, but we share the latest advances in the standard of care. We provide a lot of supportive care in terms of coping with grief, in terms of understanding the Affordable Care Act, managing symptoms and side effects. We have about 80 programs a year in the education space and then those develop derivative products of about 300 fact sheets or educational brochures per year that can be downloaded, can be sent to an individual. Many cancer um, clinics and cancer centers across the country utilize our educational material. We typically distribute about 2 million copies of that each year. And then very importantly is that third pillar our financial assistance. And we have many different funds that help an individual with respect to transportation, with respect to food insecurity, affording their medications. As an example, this past year, we gave out about $80 million in financial assistance. We have many, many other programs, a bereavement camp for individuals. And one program I'd like to highlight is our PAW program. It's unique. There's nothing else like it in this country. And that is a program that is designed to support individuals in active treatment to maintain their beloved pet. 34% of individuals that we've served through this program stated that their pet is their only form of support in their household. We provide financial assistance for food, veterinary care, boarding, assisting with walking the pet, as well as robust educational support. So we're always looking for new and expanded ways to support anyone who's been impacted by a diagnosis of cancer. Great. Thank you. On the last point, you know, correlating to cancer diagnosis is increased social, social isolation so I appreciate you making that point. Um, you, you began your answer by noting oncology or clinical social workers. For years, I've wanted to do an interview just concerning social workers in um, medical care delivery. Uh, so I'd like to take a moment if you could say a few words about the core of your staff and the training and work that your social workers do. Yes, very happy to. As I say, they are the heart and soul of our organization. Every one of our social workers has to be masters prepared, number one. Number two, we have our social workers that specialize in working with either specific diseases or populations. So we have social workers that have expertise in working with children, 
young adults. We have social workers that have expertise in dealing with the bereaved, women's cancers, men's cancers. So these are highly trained individuals. And one wonderful way and mechanism that we can, where we can recruit these social workers, we have every year a highly coveted internship program where social workers who are finishing their master's degree come and spend three months at cancer care at our side, learning what we do. And it's often been a wonderful pipeline for us to attract the best and the brightest talent. Okay, thanks again. Your work uh, sounds, there's inner, um, you can connect the dots, I'll just put it this way, you connect the dots to hospice care. So I do want to ask you a question, the relationship between your work and say the hospice Medicare program. So I think I, I say to individuals, if my one big dream is that if everyone who first got a diagnosis of cancer reached out to us, I promise they would have a better outcome with better support. And one of the things that our social workers are very adept at doing in working with our clients and working with cancer patients is helping them to communicate not only with their care team, but with their family members. We help, as an example, parents talk to their children about, I've just been diagnosed with cancer. What does that mean? And to your point with respect to hospice care, my personal opinion, and the data bears this out, is that unfortunately, individuals that enter hospice care do so way too late and quite frankly could have a much better outcome with a much higher quality of life. Everyone associates hospice care with, oh, you're, you know, this is it, you're done, you're a, a matter of days away from dying. That's simply not the case. But I will also tell you that one thing our social workers are, another thing that our social workers are very adept at doing is counseling patients who come to us and say, I'm done. I have stage four metastatic cancer. I know that I'm not going to be cured. I'd like my last weeks or months to be spent doing what I love and being with my family. But my wife says, come on, honey, you can beat this. My children say, come on, dad, just one more round or two more rounds. And that's futile care. And it's diminishing the quality of that patient's life and the time they have left with their family. We help them to be able to navigate that conversation with not only their care team, but with their family. Okay, thanks again. Let's go to, obviously, you can't do what you do without uh, having to directly and indirectly deal with uh, the patient's uh, insurance uh, policy or their health care coverage. Uh, so you're quite informed about this issue, as I noted in the opening, least of which possibly is uh, the, the issue concerning um, out-of-pocket and, of course, affordable uh, cancer uh, medications, uh, because I did note uh, medication non-adherence. So let me just ask you broadly, generally, what, what are you seeing relative to the patients you serve and the adequacy or not of their coverage, and or how do you think The follow-up is, of course, how do you believe or how do you think uh, these policies can be improved? Yes. So we help cancer patients to try and navigate through their policy 
We coach them on trying to reach out because, unfortunately, pre-authorization appeals and denials are becoming the norm. And what I'll say is that I have seen the after effects of what is, uh, quite frankly, insurance is a misnomer. It's no longer insurance. Every single day we see people that are struggling with the high out-of-pocket costs, struggling with trying to get something pre-certified, struggling with trying to get their medication covered, struggling with having been successfully taking a medication for years and all of a sudden the insurer says that it is not on the formulary. And unfortunately, and you know, this is uh, we're, we're talking now about the commercial insurance market. Correct. Unfortunately, I have yet to meet an employer that doesn't want to do the best by their employees that they possibly can. And certainly we all know that cancer or even caring for a loved one with cancer has a significant impact on presenteeism and productivity. But the problem is, and I've interacted with many employers and many Fortune 500 employers, even the largest employers don't have the expertise in-house to navigate through the increasingly complex benefit design, pre-cert, PBMs, etc. They rely on um, benefits brokers or insurance brokers that often come in and say, your problem is your drug spend, push people to generics, tier it, it all sounds good. But I can tell you that many insurance policies that exist today are replete with unintended consequences. And I am so passionate about this that we decided at Cancer Care to try and do something to give employers more information and empower them to understand what the unintended consequences are for individuals. Then, of course, there's high out-of-pocket costs. Individuals abandon their prescriptions. They break their pills in half and don't tell their provider. At the end of the day, this is going to end up in most circumstances costing an employer more, not just from the medical side, but from the presenteeism and from the productivity perspective. So we want to empower employers to do the best they can to really um, design a benefit plan that supports their employees. I will also say there was a fascinating study that came out early this year from Stanford University on the cost of administrative sludge. And the cost is staggering with respect to what the commercially insured population goes through in terms of trying to get pre-certification and trying to get their medication covered or get their hospitalization stay approved. And I gotta tell you, this isn't happening at nine o'clock on Friday night. This is happening during work hours. And the other, shall we say, side effect of this is that employees get angry and frustrated and say, this employer doesn't care about me. This is terrible insurance. They don't care about me. When in fact, again, it's often unintended consequences. And in the labor market that we're existing in today, that's an even larger issue because all employees, second only to salary, the most important benefit is health insurance. Right. So you are implying we have a, a chronic uh, labor shortage in, for several reasons, least of which a substantial number of previous workers have left the workforce um, 
before a more formal uh, age of retirement. Let me ask you I, the specific question I do want to ask you about coverage is what's since you're you know you see these this is your population what's what's your general assessment relative to the adequacy of screening? I did note, of course, not surprisingly during COVID. Um, of course, treatment became a problem because people did not want to be exposed in acute care setting to uh, COVID positive patients. Perfectly understandable. Similar problem relative to patients beginning timely screening. And there's, you know, endless examples of people who did not, by the time they were diagnosed, they had at some advanced stage. But again, generally your assessment relative, and this is commercial or employer-based coverage, relative adequacy of coverage for screenings. So I would say in that regard, much of it is mandated so that routine mammography is covered. And so in, in, in the purest sense, I think there's coverage there with a very, very big butt. And the big butt, and it's something, let me just give you an example of this. So I am a, a colorectal cancer survivor, and I've had, I had a very complicated surgery and treatment, and my surgeon, um, who is an expert, knows me, knows the surgery, knows my history, and I have to go in for routine colonoscopies. So just this year, my insurer who, by the way, bought a huge number of ambulatory surgery centers across the country, told me, no, you cannot go to him anymore. He's hospital-based. You're going to have to go to an ambulatory surgery center for your colonoscopy. That's disgusting and inhumane. Our family plan costs cancer care now over $60,000 a year. So there's the at, there are, it's supposed to, it's covered but not where I need it to be covered. And then, of course, there is COVID. And uh, the downstream effects of COVID relative to, you alluded to this early mm -hmm. in your, our discussion, is going to be huge, absolutely huge. Because first, of course, you know, the American Cancer Society um, it recommended, uh, uh, rightfully so, just delay your screening a bit, never knowing that we would be in this pandemic now, you know, two, uh, almost two and a half years or so. And then there was, of course, the fear. Then hospitals were redeploying staff and resources and not providing screening. So all of that has had a cataclysmic effect. In addition, we talk to clients who say, I know I need to go and get my colonoscopy or my mammogram, but if there's something there, I can't handle one more thing right now. So what we as an organization did in partnership with the Community Oncology Alliance is about 18 months ago, we launched a program, a national program called Time to Screen, that was a call to action through PSA, subway posters, buses, etc., for individuals to get back to screening. Patty LaBelle was the spokesperson for that program. Then we at Cancer Care staff a very high-touch line, the time-to-screen line, with experts in screening that can talk to individuals about their eligibility, their fears. We find open screening places for individuals. We find low-cost or no-cost screening because we want to do everything to be part of a solution that is definitely going to be a major problem. Right. So this uh, phrased otherwise, this is the timely diagnosis uh, question or issue, which is in cancer particularly uh, challenging. Let's just put it politely. Um, 
Let me ask you, uh, since I did in the intro make comment about medications, you know, you, you, you see these headlines about certain cancer uh, oncology drugs, six figures. Uh, these are branded, of course, patented uh, medications. Uh, what, what work or what, what are you trying to do to um, help your, your patient population as a, uh, relative to their diagnosis and, and maintaining their medication regimens. Uh, yes, I'll, I'll talk to you about that, and then I want to give you my perspective on drug pricing and, of course, what the administration is trying to do. Please. Um, but, uh, you know, let me say for us, we have um, – we're one of seven organizations in this country that uh, it has oversight by the OIG. We have a copay foundation that's specifically designed to help individuals afford their medication. And believe me, it is a massive issue. And especially for Medicare patients well, and commercial patients when January 1 hits and that deductible kicks in. And, you know, there's this big donut hole in Medicare. Mm -hmm. Some individuals have five, seven, ten thousand dollar deductibles on their insurance policies. The vast majority of Americans cannot afford that. So we're there to try and help because we know that, you know, particularly now with the economy, the soaring price of food and gasoline, cancer patients are saying, I can't go to treatment. I can't even put a meal on the table. So there's a lot of challenges, some of which are as a result of benefit design. So our financial assistance is the two largest buckets, but not the only buckets, are designed to help support people with transportation costs to and from treatment, whether that's the gasoline, the parking, the Uber, um, the, the subway or whatever, and the cost of their medication, which are, are very, very critical things. But David, I do want to say that, you know, there is, of course, uh, such dialogue around drug pricing. And, you know, I, there's no question that the list prices for these drugs are astronomical. I mean, I, I don't think any 10 years ago, if anybody had said that, the pricing today, you would say you're crazy. But there's a really, really big but here. And that is, you know, I think that a lot of organizations and a lot of perceptions out there vilify the pharmaceutical companies. There's two things I want to say about that. I profoundly believe, and especially now as a cancer survivor and in my line of work, that everybody in this world wants to see a cure for cancer, a longer life, making that disease into a chronic disease where people can live with it. And you know that that's not going to come from the next generation of a surgical robot or the next generation of IMRT, even if it's discovered in the great labs and the cancer centers across the country. It's only the pharmaceutical industry that will bring the, that that hope to a reality. Now, I'm, again, I'm not saying the pharmaceutical industry has, has, doesn't have any bad actors, but unfortunately, one of the things that I'm most disappointed about is that the administration, and I, I applaud what they're trying to do with capping out-of-pocket costs for individuals, capping prices of insulin at $35 a month, but there's a massive problem out there that the administration is not focusing on that could yield 
far more results. And that is the insurers and the PBMs, who in my mind are the bad actors. The profits, if you take a look at the profits of the insurers and the PBMs over the last few years, it's absolutely staggering. And, you know, when you look at a list price, a list price is not what any anywhere near what you pay. The PBMs are basically profiting off of rebates, playing pharmaceutical companies against one another, actually taking generics and putting them at the top tier because they can get higher rebates from the manufacturer on brand products. And then, of course, most of the PBMs, 85% of them are owned by the insurance companies. There's a huge problem here. There needs to be a very bright light shed on that industry because quite frankly it's despicable what they're allowed to do well you're probably familiar last week the new york times ran a story on uh you didn't say specifically but this was a non-profit hospital in virginia yes it was basically gaming the 340b program um it was it was quite compelling um in any event Particularly since, of course, uh, this hospital it, it, that was profiled is supposed to be serving uh, a poor community. Um, but uh, Bon Secours was the yes. was the larger network, and they had a hospital in Southern Virginia. So, um, to further your point, so yeah, uh, uh, thank you for that. Um, let me just ask you specifically, since I did mention, and I, I do want to work this question in. So the president, uh, President Biden, of course, uh, came out some while ago. Of course, the September 23rd White House basically was a, a blog post out of the White House where they they connected the dots between his cancer moonshot interests and relevant provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act. Again, moreover, price um, uh, drug pricing reforms. Of course, he did mention the enhanced, continuing the enhanced ACA credits. But what's do you have a comment on this uh, cancer moonshot effort? Uh, I've not talked to many people about it, so I'm particularly interested in what you might have to offer. So let me say, by way of a bit of background, when President Biden was vice president and the moonshot first launched, right. uh, I know Greg Simon very well. I've interacted with President Biden, and I will tell you, this is a man that is passionate about curing cancer and making a real difference. I applaud that. I love the fact that that is a part and a fabric of the White House right now. And I know he's brought Danielle in to head up the moonshot effort. I've had a couple of conversations with them. I think this is, I think it's wonderful, absolutely wonderful. But again, you know, what I'll say is that this is his goals are only going to come from the pharmaceutical industry. We have got to find a way to get much greater collaboration, I think, between the federal government and the pharmaceutical um, organizations. Now, I wish I had the magic, um, you know, the, the magic answer. I don't. But what I will say is, I do fear that um, some of this drug pricing negotiation will harm innovation when there's far more to be gained by focusing on the PBMs and the insurers and stopping some of the practices there. Okay, point well taken. I do um, possibly my uh, last, well, two questions. One is, 
In context of your mission and your work, and you answered the question relative to the frustration of the patients you serve relative to, to affording and being inherent to their medications. But beyond that, what challenges is your other challenges, additional challenges your organization facing in forwarding its work? Um, it, uh, trying to raise funds for financial assistance. We, uh, for as long as anybody can remember at Cancer Care, and by the way, uh, I have employees that have been there 45 years, the number one request for financial assistance has always been transportation to and from treatment. The pandemic and recent inflation has flipped that. The number one request now is food insecurity with transportation being second. And so we're trying every possible way we can to raise funds. You have no idea of what a 200, 300 or $500 check can mean to an individual. I didn't before I got to cancer care. So there's never enough money to go around. I think that's probably the greatest challenge. And then I would say, you know, coming back to the heart and soul of our organization, the social workers, since the pandemic and now with inflation, the intensity level of client needs are greater than we've ever seen. And that's a lot of stress for the people on the front line. So for example, before the pandemic, we have a protocol if we have clients that have suicidal ideations, that would typically happen once a month. Now we're seeing it multiple times a week. And so that's a statement on, you know, where people are, how the pandemic and the economy has impacted them. But, you know, these are the angels on the front lines. And, you know, I want to make sure they're well taken care of as well. As well. Okay. Okay. Uh, good point. I mean, this is the, this is the issue about uh, burnout within uh, the clinical um, clinicians across the board. Yes. And with COVID, of course, persisting. Uh, now, approximately three years. Um, let me. My final question is: Now you made the point about, and I appreciate the point about uh, mean lengths to stay for the Medicare hospice benefit is is too short to for the patient and their family members to really derive the benefit intended by the program, and that that's been a problem for decades. Um, so that's by way of asking the related question: That is, how best can cancer care uh, serve its patients. I mean, when when best should there be an intake or should there be preliminary conversation? Because timing here is really, uh, again, this gets at uh, timely diagnosis, timely treatment. When is best for uh, ideal time for a diagnosis of cancer for you to uh, serve or uh, begin to work with your patient population? So, as I said, I have a dream, and that is if everyone who is first diagnosed with cancer, and by the way, I don't have the resources right now, would reach out to us, we'd make a difference. And let me explain to you why. We spent years building a proprietary system so that when the social worker is doing an intake, most people that are calling us have immediate needs. They're not saying, gee, you know, I maybe I'll get cancer in three years. What are you all about? But... The, the system populates 
with all the resources that are available to that individual through cancer care so that we can say to them when the time is right, if you need counseling, if you need a support group, oh, by the way, you've just been diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer. We want to let you know in two weeks we have an educational program because we don't want to be once and done. We want to be there for the client through that particular journey. And so, again, it's not like every client that calls us takes advantage of all of those resources in the very beginning, but they know that we're there for them. And, you know, we have clients that unfortunately have passed away. Their spouse has come to us for bereavement um, work. And so, you know, we just want to be there with as many resources as we have But also, I should say, we have a massive repository. It's called our Helping Hand Guide of resources across the country. So if someone calls us and says, I live in St. Louis, Missouri, you know, I'd rather have an in-person support group than online. Mm -hmm. We will find it for them. That's very important. Very helpful. That's that's an appreciated point. Or it can't be overappreciated, I suspect. So with that, Trish, right about our time. I thank you for this overview. Very appreciative. Um, maybe just I'll leave it to you. One, any final comment? I just tell everyone about cancer care. We are here for you um, and here for anyone that has been impacted by a diagnosis of cancer. We will always do our very best. Okay. Thank you again. Be well. Thank you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.